When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business. Greetings of the day, my fellow listeners, and welcome to another edition of Building Better Businesses. I am your host, Steve Eschbach. I am the owner of Transworld Business Advisors of Naperville. I am one of six owners in Chicagoland, but Transworld Business Advisors is the largest business brokerage in the world. We're also the fastest growing. We have over 200 offices worldwide. Uh, 15 of them are not in the U.S., so that means uh, one is in the U.S., 15 others are outside of the U.S. Basically, we do three things. Number one, we assist business owners confidentially sell their businesses and match them with qualified buyers. That's one. Number two, we do franchise sales. So if there is a uh, person who wants to buy a franchise, we can assist them with that. And third, if you wanted to expand via the franchise model, we have a sister company that has done over 1,000 franchises throughout its 40-year career. They know everything you need to know about setting up a franchise from marketing to documentation, discovery days, and the like. But in any event, today's story, today is, uh, today's interview is not going to be about Transworld. It's going to be with Rick Maurer, who's an author, speaker, and a consultant. And I like the way he describes himself, or at least one of the topics he talks about, and that is change without migraines. And that is an interesting way to look at this because we know as business owners, it's very difficult to deal with change. And Rick is going to give us many examples, I'm sure, that will describe how that can be done without going to the medicine cabinet and reaching for the <laughs> medication needed to deal with the migraine. So Rick, Paul, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. It's good to be with you, Steve. So Rick, um, you are an accomplished author. You are a sought-after subject matter expert. I mean, you've been on major, major news media outlets. You've written a number of books. Tell me a little bit about where you are today. Tell me about your business, uh, how you do it as yourself, how you do it with your colleagues. Just give us a brief summary because we're going to go through it more later on. But tell us who it is you are today and how you help business owners. Okay. Okay. So, first of all, you're either looking at or listening to my entire business right now. I'm it. You know, okay. so I, I use contractors for lots and lots of things, but I used to have an assistant, but it's, it's easier right now just to do it all, all myself. And that works. Um, my consulting work has, I've really keep narrowing the focus. And now you said the change without migraines. I work with executive teams and planning teams to say, 
if you're struggling with building support and sustaining support for some change, like it might be an acquisition, a merger, a new program, if you're struggling with that, I've got a model. I can teach it to you very quickly. I can give you some advice on starting to use it. And then if you need me, call me and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll schedule a half day and talk. But my work is now so highly targeted that it allows me to work with clients who are saying we need something right now, and you know that's it. So, Rick, um, your comment that uh, you are now more focused on what you do is a common theme that I've had with many of my guests. We'll get into that in a little bit more, but yeah. I want to rewind the videotape a little bit. Uh, you and I both have gray hair, but I'd like to kind of <laughs> explore your formative years. Where were you born and raised? And uh, tell me a little bit about your parental influence and any of the family members that kind of steered you in the direction where you are today. Yeah, I grew up in New Philadelphia, Ohio. It's a, a town about 15,000. It's a couple hours south of Cleveland, a uh, very pretty hilly country. And it's funny, my dad had a furniture store, so it was Mauer Furniture. And one night, on Friday nights, he and I would stay up and watch The Tonight Show. And my mom and my sister would go to bed. And it was, you know, it was a time that we would get watch TV and get to talk some. And he said, you know, I was 14 at the time. And he said, my dream has always been that the store would say Mauer and Son. I'm the son, by the way. So there is no other son. I'm looking over my shoulder. And I said, you know, Dad, I just, you know, I, it's just, I don't think that's for me. And he said, you know, and so I'm trying to come up with reasons. And I, I play music. I used to be a professional musician. My horn is like within arm's reach of where I am. I still play a lot. And I said, you know, I really love this music stuff. And he said, yeah, you ought to do that. Get it out of your system and then move back home and you can help me run the store. And somehow I knew that wasn't right. But it's to his credit, there was never any pressure after that, none. And when I wanted to go to music school, it was absolutely, my mom and dad didn't say, are you sure you want to do that? Just none of that at all. I always, uh, I mean, if I was doing something really stupid, they would stop me. But basically, kind of, they were with me almost, you know, almost right from the beginning. I mean, even when they didn't understand, I remember after I started consulting, doing organization development consulting, there was a comedy show on called uh, Murphy Brown. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, my dad calls me and he said, hey, are you watching Murphy Brown? And I said, no. And he said, turn it on, turn it on. They're doing what you do. And they were at a team building retreat that was going really badly. So his picture of what I did was this comic version. But at least it gave him a picture because what I do is so intangible. But still, he was with me. But I, I just got to tell you one other story about a huge influence. My dad was pretty opinionated. Great guy, but opinionated. And so I, I tended not to ask him for advice very much. But one time we were home for Thanksgiving. My wife, Kathy, and I were there. And my Kathy had gone up to bed. My mom had gone to bed. And dad and I were sitting there. And I said, I need your advice, which just was stunning to him that I would say that. And I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe 40 at the time. And I said, you know, I've been working on playwriting. And I've been studying it, and I've got this one play that I really think I'm getting a lot of, you know, when we do readings, people like it. And I really want to see how, if, I can, if I'm good enough, you know, but it means really cutting back on paid work. And I said, you have any advice for me? And he said, yeah. He said, when I decided to start my store, he said, I couldn't get a loan 
from the local banks. And he said, in fact, one banker said, Eddie, you work for this company that's been around for a century. You have the most secure job in town. Why would you want to leave it? And he said, oh, I had a job that was even more secure than that. He said, what? And he said, I was in the army. They even gave me my underwear. Oh, my goodness. And dad laughed and I laughed. And then he said, you know, you don't want to get to be 20 years, 30 years older and go, I wonder. And he became this huge supporter. So whenever I had a play produced, he and mom would get in the car and drive out. I mean, it was just, it was not his idea of creating a good nest egg and all that kind of stuff that you do, but he was behind me. And I've always felt like my parents, you know, were really there for me. That sounds so good. There's nothing better than uh, support from particularly mom and dad, family members and colleagues. And uh, it sounds like you had a mutual respect for one another too, which is critically important as well. So I don't think you had any problem, nor your father had any problem with sharing your opinions. You said he was opinionated. I'm sure he he gave you a couple of thoughts to think about, but it may not have been exactly what you thought as you wanted to do, but at least you kind of respected each other's opinion, which is really great. Yeah. And that's that's so totally terrific. So I heard music and now we know about consulting. So what happened in between? Go through your (laughs) school years, your high school, college. What were you back then and how different are they today? Wow. Well, in high school, I hated school. I mean, I just I was not a troublemaker. I was a quiet kind of kid who would do the bare minimum, you know, to get to. So I never failed a class. But, you know, I never made the honor roll either. I mean, it's just I kind of floated through. But I took music very seriously. I would do whatever it took to get to play music. And, and I loved I played trumpet at the time. And so I went to music school uh, to learn and actually to learn to teach music. Uh, the advice I was getting from really good jazz musicians is get a degree in education. It's a fallback position. Well, it turns out I actually liked the idea of teaching and I, I didn't want to teach high school bands. I didn't, that didn't interest me, but the whole notion of teaching, like, especially like imagine a 10 year old kid and you hand them a clarinet and they have no idea which end is, how do you help that kid take something that is really complex and make sense of it immediately so they don't give up. And I loved the philosophy of the school I went to. And it was much later when I was a consulting, I went back there to give a graduate, a Saturday graduate class in my work. And I'm walking around and I'm looking at some of the sayings on the wall. And I realize what I do, I learned here. Like I wrote a book on feedback and it's just this really practical, do this, do this, do this. and you know, and my clients are saying, wow, your stuff, you really take big concepts, complex concepts, and you make them, you don't make them stupid, simple, but simple. And I realized I got that from the music school. So even though I never taught music, but I went out, I got out of school and I went into the U.S. Army and joined the Army Band here in Washington, D.C., which is a full-time position. I decided not to make it a career, but it was my whole enlistment. And so played a lot of, at Arlington Cemetery, played a lot of ceremonies, played a lot of the White House. Uh, we were, Richard Nixon was asked when he was vice president, what's your favorite musical group in the world? So he could have said Chicago Symphony. He could have said the Juilliard Quartet. He said the U.S. Army Band Herald Trumpets. And the Herald Trumpets were 16 of us who, and the only tune we played was Hail to the Chief. 
And he would have us at the White House all the time. And then we'd start traveling with it. I mean, not travel on Air Force One, of course, you know, um, but I mean, he, he just wanted us there for the, you know, so at any rate, so I did that. And then I taught school for a while, uh, special education. And then I went into my consulting business when I was about 30, I guess, a little older than that. So um, I have kids and they, they did music on their own. And I have heard, my wife's a teacher. So I have heard through many that there are many parallels in terms of music, understanding music. And you said you were a teacher. So I see where the consulting part comes from. I see where the discipline part comes from because you were in the army. There's nothing better than learning discipline from the military. If there's anyone that can do it any better, tell me. I don't think there is. I don't think Uh, there is either. But tell me how the transition went from a musical teacher to a consultant that focuses on change. How did you get from, it may be points, you might have had stopped along the way. Tell us about that because it sounds so fast. Well, thank you. It isn't like I had a plan to get to where I am today. I mean, it's sort of like any time there was a road less traveled, I'd go, oh, I'll take that. You know, and sometimes they were dead end things and go into swamps. But still, when I was in college, the state of Illinois had a grant program for people to work as music therapists in their mental health system. And I had loved what I was getting in college about in psychology. And so that sounded interesting to me. And I got a job actually at Elgin State Mental Hospital working, and it had been working with kids who were committed to a mental institution. And, and so in the school inside, and I thought, this is great. And it turns out my draft board didn't think it was such a great idea. And so uh, they said, you can teach in a public school, but no, you can't teach in a mental hospital. So I didn't understand the logic. But at any rate, I was going to go back and fulfill my obligation. And so I thought, well, I was in the Army. Maybe I can learn more about music therapy. And there wasn't anything except George Washington University here had a master's in working with disturbed kids in schools. And I thought, that's a good background. Well, it turns out the program was radical, and it actually served, it served me well. I didn't know when I entered it. And basically, the philosophy was a lot of these kids aren't disturbed. It's the schools that are disturbed. And if you can change schools, you'll have fewer kids acting crazy. So your job when you're hired as a teacher is you're working directly with kids, but you're basically what you're doing is a kind of Machiavellian thing. You're, you're changing the school. So you can imagine now I'm out. So I decided there were no, when I wanted to go back to Chicago to fulfill my obligation, I was thinking, well, I'll work at, in Chicago, or there are a couple of institutions near Chicago. The only openings were in very far South Chicago. And I thought, I'm single. I'm 25. I'm going to die. I mean, I really, I thrive on, you know, clubs where I could go in in Chicago, where I could go see Miles Davis and John Coltrane. And I had a season ticket to Chicago Symphony. I mean, the cities where I needed to be. Anyway, so I ended up paying Illinois back all its money. And I started teaching, but imagine my first teaching job, no experience at all. My only work at this point had been in the army playing horn, you know. So here I am, I, I walk in school. Here are these teachers who've got 20, 30 years experience. And I'm saying, hi, I'm here to help. And they go, well, that's really nice, young man. You sit right over there. And as soon as we need some help, we're going to call on you, you know. <laughs> and, and so I kept finding that I would come up with things that I thought were great ideas that would go nowhere. And that's what got me thinking about change. 
And how come some people, how come this Steve guy comes up with an idea and people go, oh, yeah, tell me more about that. I come up with an idea and they go, well, thanks a lot, you know, but we got to keep moving on. So when I got done teaching and went into consulting, a lot of my clients now were talking about change and a lot of resistance to change. So I kept going back to school. I found a place called the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland and the whole Gestalt psychology approach to resistance is people resist for a good reason. And if you try to push on that resistance, you're going to get more resistance. You know, it just just works that way. And the best way to work with resistance is to respect the person resisting and respect the resistance. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but show respect. So I really like that, but I needed to be able to talk about it in ways that my clients who were tended to be IT people or engineers would get. I couldn't use psychological stuff. Well, as I did that and worked with it, I ended up coming up with my own model. And in the mid-90s, wrote this book called Beyond the Wall of Resistance. And my phone started ringing and saying, hey, could you come in and help us with that? Could you help us? We like the way what you're talking about. It's different than what we've seen. And that has become, that book was the foundation for everything that I do. It's where this whole notion of change without migraines came from. It's, I have a new book out. It's where all of that came from. But that's the foundation piece. Yeah, well, it sounds like you uh, basically learn from experience. And just in talking with you and hearing you describe what it is that you do and where you are today, I get a sense you do a lot of listening and responding as opposed to just telling, which I think is critically important. So you care about your clients, you care about your customers, you want to understand what it is they're thinking. And then if there is a way to remold that or reshape that, you kind of do it in a way that they understand. I think you have a, a good sense of relating with people. Am I right about that? I hope so. I mean, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, well, they're coming to you and, and basically you're providing examples of how, how to kind of combat change, if you will, for the betterment of all. Mm-hmm. I think that's why they come out to you. So you said you focus on IT and engineering type clients. It's not that I focus on them. I'm really bad at marketing. I mean, I just really, no, you'll never see a marketing book come out from Rick Maurer. I mean, it just is not what I do. So if the phone rings, I take it. So I got a call right shortly after the book came out from somebody at Lockheed Martin Aerospace Company. Their headquarters are here near DC. And the woman said, hey, could I buy you lunch? And I went out there. They've been a client of mine now since 1999. So I started working with a lot of engineers there. I got a call from a chemical guy who ran a chemical plant and said, hey, I read one of your books. I'm interested. I've done a lot of work in healthcare, you know, some government work. So basically, I'm agnostic in terms of the type of organization. What the common thread is people working with people. And that's, that's where my focus is. So That sounds good. So when a client reaches out to you and say, hey, I read your book, I'm interested in working with you. What are some of the first few things that you either do in terms of the conversation or are there two or three specific questions that you start out every first client meeting that gives you a better sense of how to approach that particular client? What would that be? Oh, it's one thing that, well, there are actually two questions that I've been asking recently because I found that people sometimes would hire me and also hire other consultants, uh, not because they wanted to use what we had to say, but that they could say, you know, we hired Rick Maurer, he's written books and it didn't help. So what can we possibly do? And I've seen that they do that with even the big consulting firms. Well, if that, you know, top company firm couldn't help us, what could we do at any rate? So now I say, all right, so imagine you're the new client, Steve. I'll go scale of one to five. 
how important is it? You don't have to play back, but it's just, so on a scale of one to five, how important is it going to be for you to build strong support for this change, this project? And if you say anything lower than a four, I'll say, that's fine, but I don't think I can help. Wow. Because my work is just on how do you build and sustain support and forward momentum? And that's what I do. And anything less than that, you might pick up a few things, but my fear is, that it could also send the wrong message to your people because you'll be getting them involved in conversations that you really don't want to do. So we're better off not doing it. But my second question is, first time I ever asked, people kind of looked away and kind of like got nervous. I said, scale one to five, how willing are you to be influenced by the people you're trying to influence? And it takes people a second to go, oh. And that People sort of know they need to say, oh, yeah, I'm willing to be influenced, but it got, it stops people. So they have to think about it like, okay, what Rick's doing is he's saying, we've got to actually listen to those other people. Do we want to hire the guy? Those are two just fundamental questions. Um, yeah, and it sounds like, and again, I'm going to paraphrase. So you help me correct. Okay. Me. So it sounds like back and forth, give and take is critically important to what you do. You have a mindset in terms of how you can help them battle change without migraine, so to speak. But if their resistance seems to be too much to the point where you're not going to break some of that, then that might not be a good endeavor for you. Is that kind of right? Is that what you're saying? Or No, it's, I'm not going to break any resistance in their organization. I'm working, if you're my client, you're a leader of something maybe of a small group, maybe the whole organization. And my job is to be much like a coach in a, a sporting event, you know, to say, hey, do you realize that when you go into a meeting, you do 90% of the talking? No, I didn't realize it. Well, you know, look, why don't we talk about that? Here's some things that you could do. So, so it's that, it's that I've got the mo- these models I use. Do you have time for another story? Yeah, please. Okay. This has become the foundation piece Okay, so, you know, they really were scared and they said, what should we do? I mean, and I didn't know any more about the challenge they were facing than you do right now. I mean, it was, but they're asking for advice and an irresponsible thing for me to do would be to go, well, you know, turn to page 42 in my book. And there's, because, I mean, there was something going on and I, so I said, I'm searching for something so I could actually be helpful. And I said, hey, all of you know, somebody who's come into that meeting, right? And they said, oh, yeah. And I said, what's going to be on their minds? And I started writing the stuff down, and I almost couldn't write fast enough. They were just giving me stuff. Everything they were saying was negative. And as I'm writing, I knew what to do with it. And so they get done. And I said, so I just taught you my three levels of resistance. I'm just going to tell you what they are very quickly. I said, let me use the green marker. Level one is I don't get it. I mean, they don't understand it. So let me underline the things there that just have to do with lack of understanding. So I underline those. And I said, level two is I don't, I don't like it, which is an emotional reaction based on fear. There is something about this that scares me. I could lose my job. I could lose face. I, could, I said, let me use a blue marker. And I underlined those level two things. And then I said, and the third one, level three, is I don't like you. So I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't like you. I said, but basically that means I don't have trust and confidence in you or this team. And I underlined those with a third color marker. And the guy who had said the bomb is going to drop said, oh, that's why the bomb is going to drop. And people looked at him and said, why? And he said, look at that. We designed that eight-hour meeting to deal with level one, to deal with facts and figures. 
probably 10% of what's on that list is level one. Everything else is fear or lack of trust in us. And people say, oh, oh. Now, here's what they did that was absolutely brilliant. And I love telling this part of the story. They said, could we take the next hour and redesign that meeting? They did not turn to their consultant or to me and say, do you have a good technique that we could use? And we, of course, we said, yeah, they turned their chairs around. They didn't call on Ross and me for the hour. They said, okay, here are the things we have to cover, but how do we do it in a way that doesn't create fear? And how do we do it in a way that might actually start to build their trust in us? And they did it the next week. And it's not like 100% of the people stood and cheered, but they had a lot of people on their side as a result. So this notion of creating a list is I have to know what's on the list before I can work with a client. And my client needs to know that too. So, and there's a lot of ways to get at that. I just described a simple one, but it's there because then once we know what's on the list, because there can be positive things on the list too, then I can say, okay, here's where the work is. Wow. That's so fascinating. You basically outlined three items. They recognize it. They wanted to regroup and develop them themselves and come back at you. So I think, and that, that stimulates input from them as well to resolve the problem or to come up with the solutions needed to move forward. So you provide the snippets, they take it to the level that's pertinent to them, they come back at you for further guidance. Yeah. I can't think of any better example than trying to, and that, that shows feedback, that shows interpersonal relationships, that shows the highlights of the items that really bubble up that they need to address. Oh, that is so powerful. Unfortunately, Rick, we don't have any more time to uh, go through another example, but what you just told us is very, very interesting and I appreciate you sharing your insights. So last but not least, is there anything we haven't covered? I think you covered quite a bit. I don't think there's any other item you need to mention unless we're missing something. I know you got five other topics you can talk about, but anything related to this? No, I would like to mention my new book, if that's all right. Please do. I'd, I'd okay. love you to do that. Okay. So I just, in April, released a book as an ebook. It's on my website. It's called Seizing Moments of Possibility, and it's ways that the very few things we're talking about right now, people can begin to add that into what they're doing. So the idea is you don't make the human part of change a separate thing that has to be blended in, just like a good barista blends espresso and milk together. You can't tell where one ends, the other begins. That's what needs to happen. So the book basically says, here's how to begin doing that and begin doing it slow so that it's safe. And my favorite quote in the book came from the great philosopher, Yogi Berra. I hear he played baseball too. Uh, And he said, you can observe a lot just by watching. So the beginning of the book is how do you watch what's going on? Like this Steve guy is running the meeting and people are excited. What's going on? Or people are falling asleep. What's going on? That's better than reading another book or anything. Anyway, the ebook is free. Absolutely. It's just on rickmauer.com and there's no sales pitch or anything. It's just, you go and you, you know, it says, you know, click this link, you put your email address in and you got the book. It's that simple. That is so good. Uh, audience, please take advantage of that opportunity. It's a, it's a great thing to go forward. Rick's got a lot of insights. I appreciate you sharing what you did. I'll leave you with one other yogiism. And I quote a lot of that in my public speaking. And my, one of my most favorite ones is when you get to the fork in the road, take it. It's the story of my life, man. (laughs) You know why he said that? that? Because it turns out that the fork in the road was actually a roundabout. So if you went left or you went right, you went to the same place. But I love it. I love it. (laughs) 
in any event, with that as our last chuckle, if you will, thanks so much, Rick, for your time. Thanks oh. for sharing. I'm going to have you back again because there's so much more we can talk about. One, and I would love it. That'd be great. Thanks so much. And uh, audience members, uh, have a good rest of the day. Thanks for joining us and uh, stay tuned for another edition of Building Better Businesses. Thanks so much. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.